Julie's going to give the presentation, but I'll just start with a little introduction. I discovered this music in 1976 when I got out of college, and I sang for, in the choir at the Basilica of the Sacred Heart in Charleston, West Virginia. Tenor, oh boy, it was the old days. <laughs> and we did the Hallelujah Chorus, which I think that's probably one of the movements of this work uh -huh. everyone knows. And when it came to the day of the concert, there were three tenors in the choir. One was traveling on business, the other one was sick, and so me. One tenor, Hallelujah Chorus. I think Tim knows what that would be like. It's <laughs> powerful music and one tenor screaming his head off. But uh, after I did that, you know, they discovered Handel and the Messiah. I had to get myself a record, which I played many times when I was doing projects on Saturday around my house. I think it's all burned out. I don't think I even play music anymore. But so I learned every every song there. So I had to get oh, so I had to get myself a libretto so I could sing along with the parts. That's how much I enjoyed it. And then we moved to Sheboygan, and I, of course, updated to a CD. <laughs> and uh, I played in the Sheboygan, played trumpet in the Sheboygan Symphony, and they did the Messiah at Holy Name. Maybe some of you attended that, that was probably 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we have a celebrity in the house who sang the tenor arias, Mr. Jim Reagan. When he sang those, I thought, where'd they get this guy? Bring him in from New York? Man, he'd fill that church up with song. So, okay. I'll turn it over. Julie's going to tell you why this is such powerful music and why it stood the test of time over what, well, almost 300 years. Yeah. And actually tonight, it's uh, a, really a study of the scriptures that are, um, make up all of the text of the Messiah. Um, but also the music. So I, I've titled it The Music and the Message because I'm going to give you a little bit of background about the composer, the Baroque period, which is what era this music is from, and then really dig into all of the scriptures that make up the entire piece. Um, interestingly enough, the name of the, the oratorio is not the Messiah, it's just Messiah. But as you can see by Tom's um, libretto here, they get it wrong all the time. They have thought the Messiah. So it's just a Messiah. Starting out, um, George Friedrich Handel is the composer, from, lived from 1685 to 1759. And he was in the Baroque period, which we'll kind of look at where that fits into history in a minute. He was born in Germany, and unlike a lot of um, musical geniuses, he was not born into a family of musicians. His father was a prosperous barber surgeon, which in those days meant he was a barber, he cut hair, but he also, because he had the sharp tools, pulled teeth, lanced boils, did amputations when necessary, um, and so kind of carried out all those things. And he was a very practical person and did not want his son to pursue music. Um, but there's legend. Now, you, you know, that you gotta take it with a grain of salt because they really don't know for sure. But somewhere, as a child, Handel learned to play the clavichord or the harpsichord. And um, the legend is that a relative snuck a clavichord up into the attic of the home and that Handel would go up there as a young child and taught himself to play. And when he was about eight or nine years old, he accompanied his father to the um, Duke of Weissenfels estate, where he was probably a client of the barber surgeon. 
and um, snuck into the chapel and started playing the organ in the chapel. And the Duke was so overwhelmed at his prowess that he said, that child needs to study music. And so Handel's father was convinced to let him take lessons with a local organist by the name of Friedrich Willem Zacco. Well, he did enroll in law school at the advice of his father, but he just couldn't stay away from music. At the age of 18, he moved to Hamburg where he started studying opera and writing opera. And he wrote his first opera at the age of 18. Um, after, um, after he went to Hamburg, he then went to Italy. And at 25, he returned to Germany and became the music director at the court of the Elector of Hanover, which is a, a type of prince. Um, prince George was his name. And the fact that he was the elector had something to do with um, the, um, the people who elected the Holy Roman Emperor um, of, the, of the Roman Empire. Um, I'm not quite sure about the political parts of that, but anyways, he, he was working in the court of Prince George, the Elector of Hanover. Well, in about 1711, he asked if he could go to England on a sabbatical, and Prince George said, okay, fine, as long as you come back. So he did, he went for a while, and he came back. And then he asked again in 1712, can I go on another sabbatical to England? And the same thing, yes, go ahead. Well, he decided not to come back. And um, it just so happened that a few years later, Prince George of Hanover became King George I of England. And it was a little awkward for Handel because now the boss that he kind of jilted was now the King of England. And to kind of make up for it, he wrote um, water music, which was a suite of instrumental music that played as the, as the king was floating down the river on his elegant barge. And you can see in the background of this painting, there's another boat with the musicians playing and serenading. And that was sort of his overture to make, make up to the, the <coughs> king, king George and uh, get back in his good graces. Um, he became a British citizen in 1726. And he's considered, even though he's German, he's considered to be an English composer because he spent virtually his entire adult career um, composing in England. And he is buried in Westminster Abbey, um, and in, which is quite an honor. Just a quick little timeline, just to kind of give you perspective. The Baroque period follows the Renaissance period and, um, and is followed after that by the classical period. So roughly 1600 to about 1725, 1750. Um, so Handel was writing at the very, he was writing toward the, the second half of the, the Baroque period. And his contemporaries were Vivaldi and Bach. He learned from um, Corelli and Scarlatti when he was in Italy and um, Haydn and Mozart studied his, his work. And probably, Haydn probably um, knew him. Um, so I just kind of gave you a couple of, just to kind of give you perspective of, of the passage of time on the, the events down below. The Baroque period. I would tell the kids at school, there is no such thing as too fancy in the Baroque period. This is a church, and it has lots of gilt, different colors of marble, frescoes all over the place. It was just, everything was decorated in the Baroque period. 
a little bit more subdued, but still, every surface has some kind of frieze or some kind of sculpture. And it's, you notice it's rather asymmetrical too. They didn't worry about everything being balanced out perfectly on each side. This is a contrast of windows. On the left, you have the very decorated Baroque window. And on the right, the more simple refined windows of the classical period that followed, which um, valued things to be more simple, straight lines based on Greek, ancient Greek architecture. The fashions of the day were highly decorated. Um, this, of course, is the upper class, the nobility. But even people that were in the merchant class would have had brocade and lace and trim uh, on their garments. It wouldn't, wouldn't be just simple, straight lines. In the middle, you see um, a picture of a piece of jewelry. Uh, the word barocco is a Portuguese word that means misshapen pearls. Those were very popular at the time, and that piece of jewelry is made out of a Baroque, a set of Baroque pearls. They're not perfectly round. They would take these misshapen pearls and, and, and fashion them into um, exotic jewelry. Here we have some Baroque furniture. Now, if this was Sesame Street, I'd say, one of these things is not like the other. So which one can you tell is not a Baroque chair, a Baroque piece of furniture? That red seated one right in the middle. That's more from the classical period, where they went to much simpler, more refined, uh, streamlined um, taste. Now, what is the ornamentation that we have in music? Um, here we have a whole bunch of um, examples where on the upper staff there's a simple note and this is uh, the note C. And in Baroque music it's full of things called trills, turns, mordants, um, and what they would do is they would not just play that note, they would play that note and a note either above or below it very quickly in kind of a fluttery t uh, style. And um, track number two is going to give you an example of both the trills in the strings and also vocal trills, where the singers make their voices kind of quiver on two pitches very rapidly in certain spots. There's a trill. when they wanted to embellish and ornament the music. Um, another thing you will find in uh, Baroque music is a contrast that like, oh, I missed the art. Do we miss the art? I had a couple examples of art from the Baroque period and they must have um, dropped out of the, the uh, one of the things that you would see in both art uh, and music is contrast, light and dark, 
Um, in this case, it's the texture. Um, homophonic texture was when all of the voices were singing the same words or the same things at the same time. So if you can see where the green um, stripes there, all of the voices, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, they're all singing glory to God. Glory to God in the high. Yes, and it's easy to understand what they're doing. A little bit later in the same piece of music, it switches to polyphonic texture or counterpoint where you have different voices starting and stopping at different times in staggered layers that kind of overlap disjointedly, but yet it all comes together harmonically. So the green is the bass line, the blue is the tenor, the purple is the alto, and the dark pink is the soprano. And you'll notice that they, they all kind of start and stop and are overlapping each other. And this is what, I just took an excerpt from the beginning and end of this piece of music, and you'll hear first the homophonic texture, and then the polyphonic. was something they would do. Um, this piece is called All We Like Sheep. And it comes from the passion part of the, of the oratorio, where um, the people are singing, all we like sheep have gone astray. And they're kind of actually being a little bit blase about it, and kind of, oh yeah, we've just gone astray. And on the word astray, the women go way up, and the men, the tenors, go down. They diverge like this. And it's like the sheep leaving the fold. One going this way, the other's going that way. Um, and that's one type of word painting. In the same piece, um, all, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And on the word turned, their voices are just going, you can see the pink, pinkish purple there, just kind of going up and down very rapidly, almost like it's spinning and turning. And then when they get to everyone to his own way, it's everyone to his own way, like they're really adamant, we're gonna do it our way, and they stay right on that same pitch. So this is what it sounds, another couple of excerpts. And you'll hear the voices go. Of, 
think it's on there. Keep it going. At the very end of the piece, they go with the rest of the text. The Lord has laid upon him all of our iniquities. So this is where they change the whole tempo, the whole tone of the piece. Because we have been like, she goes from the light, fluffy music to heavy, dark, slow realization that our sin was laid on. Orchestra in uh, the Baroque period was relatively small. Um, what 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 instrument family do you notice as being the most prevalent? The strings. The strings. It, strings ruled the day in the Baroque period. Um, you'd also find some woodwinds, um, mainly oboe, some bassoon, trumpets now and then, and then the harpsichord or the continual organ were generally at the center, and they often did not have a conductor. The harpsichord is kind of was the center of the group, and because it was a smaller group, they really didn't need a conductor. For the Messiah, they did need a conductor because in addition to an, a small orchestra, you also had a choir. And with that many people, somebody needed to keep them all together. So this might have been your typical orchestra at the end of a bar the Baroque period. Um, the natural trumpets were, did not have valves. They were just, you know, one tube that looped around. Um, in in uh, the Messiah, uh, Handel kept it quite simple because they were going to be premiering it in Ireland and he wasn't sure he would have um, musicians with enough prowess to play really difficult music. So he scored it just for two trumpets, two oboes, a first and violin section, um, and a timpani, only on some of the pieces, and then a basso continuo, which might have been played by the harpsichord or a continual organ. Sometimes the strings, the lower strings, would play the, the basso continual, which was just the chord structure underneath the whole piece. All right, getting into the oratorio. The Messiah is an oratorio. And some of you, might, you may already know what that is, but for those of you who don't, um, Handel started out Handel started out writing opera, and um, he loved writing opera, but by the 1930s, mid-1930s, opera started to kind of lose its appeal because um, it, there was a growing middle class that wanted to attend uh, 10 concerts, um, and they didn't know Italian, and opera was almost always performed in Italian. And, it was getting expensive to put on operas with the sets and the costumes and paying the, the salt. So um, Handel decided to move to the oratorio form because an opera tells a story and an oratorio tells a story, a biblical story, uh, but it's not dramatized. An opera's got the stage, the sets, the acting, the costumes, but for an oratorio, it's given in concert form. So in a concert hall, everyone's singing the parts, but they're not acting it out. Um, it almost always tells a biblical story, and in most cases, it's Old Testament, because that's where all the juicy stories are in the Bible. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but there are occasionally, he wrote one on Hercules, which is based on mythology. Um, so he wrote quite a, quite a few different oratorios. Um, Samson, uh, Israel and Egypt, Esther, um, mostly on, on biblical texts. 
an uh, opera has three acts, mostly, um, and oratorio generally has three parts. They usually both start with an overture, in this case it's called the symphony, which is just that three minute piece that Tom was playing as we were getting settled at the tables. An uh, opera in those days was most often in Italian, Handel used English, so the common person could come and understand what they were hearing. They're all broken up into multiple movements, uh, little sections. So you've got choruses in both, and the, and the Messiah is very chorus dominant. Um, used, he used the chorus more in that, uh, uh, that oratorio than any other. Um, it also has arias, which is like a lyrical song by a soloist, and recitative. So um, a recitative is usually a short, um, not really chanted, but very uh, simple um, solo piece that kind of moves the story along. And um, uh, numbers five and number five is an example of a recitative. Could you tell what she was singing about? <coughs> yep, a virgin shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel, God with us. Um, An aria, on the other hand, is longer and more lyrical, and kind of shows off the soloist's uh, voice. And so this aria is "Every Valley," which is a, um, a uh, "Every Valley shall be exalted," which is a uh, text we hear often in Advent. <coughs> every valley shall be exalted, and every hill made low. And on the first time he sings the word exalted, he sings 48 different pitches on that one word. Well, 48, changes his pitch 48 times. Everybody, everybody shall be exalted, shall be Scripture, Handel wrote the music, but we have to credit Charles Jennings, who was the librettist. He decided what scripture texts to put together for this oratorio. He was a wealthy landowner in England. He was a devout Christian and a patron of the arts, and uh, befriended Handel, and um, his, his goal in life was to be sort of an evangelist and bring these sacred texts to the public in a way that was very meaningful. Um, he also collaborated with Handel for the Oratorio Saul, which is uh, from the um, Old Testament Saul, Belshazzar, 
um, which is, uh, I think, the Babylonian uh, times, and then Israel and Egypt, uh, which is uh, based on their time, you know, coming out of Egypt and um, besides the Messiah. Did I have anything else about him? Oh, um, because the texts he chooses are a little difficult to understand, he actually published a pamphlet for the audience um, at the performances so that they would understand what they were listening to and uh, the context of it all. The Messiah was composed by Handel once he got the libretto in 24 days. The, the vocal score that Tom had is 259 pages long. He wrote 53 movements in 24 days um, and orchestrated it all. It premiered in Dublin, Ireland on April 13, 1742, and it was written for charity. And because so many people, Handel had quite a reputation by then, so it was a big deal that he was coming to Ireland. And so many people wanted to attend that the ladies were told to leave the hoops out of their skirts. And the men were told to leave their swords at home so that they would be able to fit into the concert hall. And so they had about 700 in attendance. And yes, it was in a concert hall, not in a church. The oratorios were performed in concert halls, which was kind of scandalous when they brought it to London because a lot of people felt that an oratorio about the Messiah should not be done in a concert hall. And so when they advertised it in, in London, they advertised it as just a new sacred oratorio by George Friedrich Handel. Um, he wrote the music to be relatively accessible for musicians because he didn't know that he would be able to get the caliber of instrumentalists in Dublin that he had in London. He brought his um, soloists with him and they had a choir of 16 men and 16 boys, at that time boys saying the alto and soprano parts, and um, they were not you know, necessarily professional singers. They were from one of the chapels in the area. So it's not unusual, it's not that big a, um, it's not hard to understand why so many small cities and small city orchestras you know, undertake the Messiah. Um, because he did, even though it sounds really, it's hard for the soloists, but it is accessible for the musicians. All right, what's in a name? Why the Messiah? Why not Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Lord? Um, Messiah is uh, uh, based on the Hebrew word Mashiach or Christos in Greek. It literally means the anointed <coughs> or chosen one. Ha Mashiach is the Messiah, okay? Like not just, Messiah could mean, you know, someone who saves, someone who um, helps, someone who liberates, but Hach Mashiach in the Jewish tradition was the Messiah that was gonna come and, you know, redeem Israel. And then Malach Mashiach is King Messiah. Um, the, Jew, the, the Jewish uh, tradition believed that the, the Messiah would be a Jewish leader descended from the line of David, that that Messiah would unify the tribes of Israel, gather all the Jews to the Holy Land, the promised land of Israel, and that they would usher in a messianic age of global peace. Um, but Genesis decided he wanted not to just talk about the life of Jesus. So in this, you do not hear any parables in the Messiah. 
There's no miracle working. There's no Sermon on the Mount, no Last Supper. It's not a narration. He does not take the scriptures, for the most part, from the, um, from the New Testament. He takes the majority of the scriptures from the Old Testament. There are 48 Old Testament verses. There are only 32 New Testament verses. And part of it is that he wanted to focus on the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament and how they became realized and came to be in the life of Jesus. And that, you know, sort of like all these prophecies, how they, could they possibly all come true in this one person? And they did. And that is, he felt, is really what spurs the faith of people. Um, you know, in the Catholic Catechism, faith is the re realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. That's from Hebrews. And, um, you know, this gave them, this Messiah, he felt, gives us the, the, the things, the, the evidence of things not seen. And the, the, we realized that, you know, those hopes were all fulfilled in Jesus. So it's, it's split into three sections, three parts, like just like an opera has three acts. And he, Jennings wanted it to be a reflection on the salvation history from the promise of the Old Testament to fulfillment in the New Testament. The first section is all God's promise and plan to redeem mankind, bringing a Messiah to us. The second set part is the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and then the proclamation of the gospel. And then the short third part is the final triumph over sin and death. So starting with the promise of salvation. After the overture, the first piece you hear in the Messiah is a tenor recitative, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. In this, uh, this is written at the time of the end of the, um, the Jewish um, um, subjugation under the Babylonians. Babylon had conquered the Israel. They had taken the Jews back to Babylon. They were enslaved um, under, the, they were exiled under the Babylonians. And so it's coming to the end of that exile. And when he, this is from the King James Version, so some of the wording is archaic, but that her warfare is accomplished means that um, their servitude to Babylon is coming to an end and that her iniquity is pardoned. A voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. This is from Isaiah 40. If I didn't tell you it was from Isaiah 40, where would you think it was from? John the Baptist. Yeah, the New Testament uh, accounts of John the Baptist. Um, and, uh, we hear this Isaiah 40 passage on the second Sunday of Advent. We're going to hear, we're going to hear it. Um, well, actually, it's quoted in Matthew. We're going to hear, hear this quoted in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew this weekend. Um, Matthew 11.10 references uh, Jesus, who confirms that John is the messenger. This is the one about whom it is written. That happens on the third Sunday of Advent. So, Old Testament comes to pass in the New Testament. Isaiah 40 goes on, every valley shall be exalted, we just listened to that music, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked straight, crooked straight and the rough places plain. 
Um, it, they, that was the idea that they were, they were heading back to Jerusalem after their exile, and the path was going to be made straight for the Lord as they brought you know, the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple. Um, they were, all those places were going to be made, uh, made level for them to travel straight to Jerusalem. But when we look at it from the New Testament um, perspective and the teachings of Jesus, we know that he also, when we hear the every valley shall be exalted and every hill made low, we think about the leveling of humanity. You know, the proud are brought down, the humble and meek are brought up. So it, there's always that kind of dual uh, meaning of the text. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Um, we'll hear uh, these same texts again in John um, 1.23. John the Baptist confirms that I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. So all of this early Isaiah text is repeated again in the Gospels. All right, now you'd think everybody's rejoicing, hey, we're, you know, our, our, our exile is over. But then right away there's a reminder that judgment is still coming. So don't get too, um, don't get too relaxed. The next section also from two of the Old Testament uh, prophets, Haggai and Malachi, starts out, thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Now when the bass sings this, I wish I could have included every bit of music, but he, his voice actually sings, shake. It sounds like he's shaking as he sings. Um, the Lord, Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom, he, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Obviously, this is a very um, uh, Advent-type uh, Advent uh, reading, and the Malachi verse will show up in the fourth week of Advent during the weekday readings, and also again at the presentation of the Lord. Will come suddenly, okay? So the Messiah will come suddenly, but also where else do we, we, do we believe that there's going to be a sudden coming? the second coming. So everything kind of reflects on both past and future. <clears throat> Malachi continues, but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. So the refiner's fire was for purifying metals. They would, you know, silver, gold, they would heat the metal so hot that all the impurities would float to the top and could be skimmed off, and you were left with the pure silver or the pure gold. And it's very often that they speak about um, God you know, being like a refiner's fire, that he's gonna draw out the impurities. Um, in Zechariah 13, um, only one third will be left and refined. I will bring the one third through the fire. I will refine them as one refined silver, and I will test them as one tests gold. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So this theme of separating the pure from the impure happens throughout, 
throughout scriptures in both Old Testament and New Testament. Um, all right, the second verse there, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The sons of Levi, the Levites were kind of where the priests came from in, in the um, Jewish community. Um, they were the ones that would go into the tabernacle. They were the ones that um, you know, basically took care of all of that. And so it was very important that they be righteous in order to bring the offering to into the, once a year they would go into the Holy of Holies and you know, give the burnt offering uh, inside that veil of the Holy of Holies. And so being righteous was very, very important. All right, so the next section in, in the oratorio begins the prophecy of the Savior's birth. Because no matter how hard those Levites tried to be pure, were, they, were, we all, were any of us able to remain pure? No. no. So we need to have a Savior. We need a Messiah. And it begins with the prophecy of the Savior's birth. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we just hear, heard in that recitative. Um, This is going to be heard, uh, it's quoted again, the same words are quoted in Matthew 1.23. We're going to hear those in the fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, and we, we, what's very important is the word conceive, because as Catholic Christians and many, many Christians, uh, besides our denomination, we believe that Jesus was begotten, not made. We say that in our creed. Uh, begotten, not made in the, um, in the um, the Apostles' Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Very important because the whole idea of Jesus being the Son of God and consubstantial with God is central to our beliefs, um, and that he's the heir. Um, the word Emmanuel, God with us, emphasizes that Jesus is God. He's one with the Father. He's both fully human, and fully divine at the same time. It goes on, uh, continuing in Isaiah 40. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up into the high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Unto the cities of Judah, prepare. We know the song, Like a Shepherd. That comes, that's, that's the text that we have in verse 1 of the song, Like a Shepherd, which we usually do during Advent. Um, it goes on, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. So these are those very hopeful passages that we hear during Advent, um, that you know, there's something great coming. And I, the Isaiah 60 passage actually shows up in um, Epiphany when we're celebrating the, um, the Magi coming to the stable, uh, the whole idea of light. Christ is the light of the world, for thy light is come. It goes on, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gro gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee and the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. That again, foreshadows the Magi. 
and kings to the brightness of thy rising. The Magi or kings, three kings, followed that star to, to uh, Bethlehem. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. Um, the um, second section there, the Isaiah 9, that is a reading, that's from the first reading that we will hear on Christmas Eve. Fits into our liturgical year. Um, this prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew 4.16. So after John the Baptist's arrest, Jesus travels to um, Capernaum by the sea, and um, there's, if you look, there's a, oh, I had a, I had a cross-reference here, but I lost the second half of it. Sorry about that. All right, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Um, this is one that we, uh, you may have heard, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it's just a wonderful chorus that, um, that is often played by itself at Christmas time. It can stand alone without being part of the oratorio. So this is the end of the prophecy of the Messiah. And then there's a short instrumental piece called the Pastoral Symphony or the Pifa. Um, and we, it's hard to say exactly why this fits in there because they don't often have instrumental pieces in oratorios. But um, when Handel was in Italy, the Pifferari were the shepherd pipers the, that would come into, into Rome uh, during Christmas time and come through the, play through the streets on their pipes. And so we think that that was probably his inspiration for that. Um, maybe he wanted a segue as he moves from all of these Old Testament passages to suddenly now being in the New Testament. A prophecy fulfilled, the Annunciation to the Shepherds. So this is four short, or four short recitatives by a soprano and then a chorus. It starts out, there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. So the first half there is going to be, um, first half is going to be simple recitative. The bottom half is going to be accompanied recitative. You will hear a change in the accompaniment. Suddenly it's going to sound like, instead of just simple harpsichord, playing chords, like fluttering angels played by the violins. Then it goes back to simple recitative again. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Um, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And now when the angel multitude comes, we go back to the fluttering angel wings again. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Or as we sing at Christmas time, Gloria in excelsis Deo. So it's CD number two. So we're going to just play those sections because it's Christmas time. Turn it up. 
where it's all about rejoicing. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is the righteous savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. Now, this is archaic, but what he means is they're gonna bring, this is the first indication that, that salvation is gonna come not just to the Jewish people who've been waiting for it, but the heathen is referring to the Gentiles. And so this, this Messiah is not just for the one, one group of people, it's for all. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an art and the tongue of the dumb shall ring. How was that fulfilled in the New Testament when Jesus went around healing? You know, all of that, that came about. Um, then there's just this beautiful, beautiful um, aria by an alto. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd, and he shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This reflects on Jesus as the good shepherd. Um, Jesus in John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So little bit of foreshadowing there and I'm gonna have I just have a little excerpt of this it just has this um, feeling of languid contentment that we're at this point where he's the shepherd is with us and we have nothing to worry about him all ye that labor and are heavy laden and he shall give you rest 
Take his yoke upon you and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now, this um, part of Matthew, um, they're basically talking about the burden is, um, the he they're laden with this heavy burden. It's, it's the law, the Jewish law, that the scribes and Pharisees have you know, come to this point where there's almost no way that you can follow the law the way they've interpreted it. You know, you're just going to be sinning right and left because the law is so, you know, strictured. And Jesus says, come unto me. Um, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, and it's basically he's saying, because he's offering forgiveness of sins, that we are going to be able to shed that burden of always, you know, Obviously, he doesn't want us to sin, but we have hope of redemption um, from our transgressions because he's going to be paying the price for us. Um, and so when the chorus comes in with his yoke is easy and his burden is light, if I had to give one adjective to the music in this section, I would give it the word fluffy. It's just so light and fluffy, like it would be just so easy to sing, so easy to carry, and this is what it sounds like. part two, which covers the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of this. Now, the thing about this is um, it doesn't have uh, a, a lot of the, the New Testament gospel readings that we're used to. He's going to be going back to the Old Testament for most of it. But he starts out with John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. We hear that every time we go to Mass. And it happens when the, the consecrated host is elevated, you know, after the priest has consecrated it and says, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Happy are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Um, so that is so central to our, our faith. And the Lamb, the whole idea of the Lamb comes in many capacities. In um, the pre, in Jewish time, uh, the, like the, when the Jews were in Israel, um, lamb was what slaughtered at Passover and painted the blood on the doorposts so that the, um, the angel of the Lord would pass over them and not kill the firstborn. Um, so that, that sacrificial lamb was an actual lamb. Um, there are also references um, um, in Isaiah, uh, references one who suffers like a lamb led to the slaughter as a sin offering. So a person who suffers like a lamb offered as a sin offering. And then there is the lamb, the lamb, the idea of the lamb comes up in Revelation all the time. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Okay, so Christ's passion. Again, 
told through the Old Testament prophecies. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He hid not his face from shame and spitting. We hear Isaiah 53 on Good Friday, and we hear Isaiah 50, the second uh, passage there, on Palm Sunday. So those are all part of the first readings on those liturgies. Um, and um, all those things did happen to Jesus. We know from the Gospels that he was spit upon, he was, um, he was rejected. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Again, emphasizing that he took the fall for us. And with his stripes, we are healed. And that's a, um, a lovely chorus. Sing about the stripes, of course, the, the whip marks on his back. And then here's, in the middle of this section, all the music's been kind of very, you know, um, somber. Then we have this, all we like sheep have gone astray. And it's like, why is this, you know, why is there this like lively music all of a sudden in the middle of Christ's passion? Well, it's because, you know, we were just so blase about it. You know, the people around him weren't, you know, they weren't in support of him. It was, it was like a, almost a festival um, atmosphere, um, you know, calling for Barabbas instead of Jesus, you know, having him be freed. And... Uh, but then it changes at the very end, the second half, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All they that see him laugh him to scorn. They shoot out their lips and shake their heads, saying, He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him if he delight in him. My choir people should know, when do we sing that? The, the refrain for Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We sing it on Palm Sunday every year. All who see me laugh at me, they mock me with parted lips and wag their heads, that's the, the translation we use. Um, and he, he trusted in God that he would deliver him. I have a little short snippet of this chorus. And as I was listening to it, it's the, you know, the Pharisees and the people standing around saying, well, you know, he, you know, he says he's the Messiah. Why can't he just come down off that cross? Well, you know, why does he just tell God to rescue him if he's his son? And the music reminds me of that little, that song in The Music Man, that pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, cheep, cheep, cheep. Like, they're, it's just like they're passing, it's like a mob mentality. They're just passing that, that mocking, yeah, you know, why can't he just deliver himself? Um, you know, and it's spreading throughout the crowd, and this is what it sounds like.
one of the most sad things in the whole piece. Thy rebuke hath broken his heart. He is full of heaviness. He looked for some to have pity on him, but there was no man, neither found he any to comfort him. Um, this is from the Psalms, which was written before Christ was born, but we know all these things came to pass. There was no, no one to comfort him. He was denied even by his closest friend. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto his sorrow. And here's just a little taste of that, thy rebuke hath broken his heart. We have to remember, he was human. He had emotions like we did and had to feel that. death and resurrection and I didn't realize this when I started studying this piece but the death and resurrection is two short movements that's it we don't get you know the I thirst or woman behold your son son behold your mother we don't get any of those things that Jesus said on the cross we get from Isaiah he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of thy people was he stricken. Number 11. God the Father, didst not leave his soul, Jesus' soul, in hell, nor didst thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And whenever they use the corruption here, they mean like to die and decompose, um, to rot away. Um, and the music all of a sudden is just very light and joyous, and he is risen. What were you expecting to hear with Jesus rising from the dead? 
the hallelujah chorus. Where's the hallelujah chorus? Well, it doesn't happen yet. And we'll find out why in a bit. All right, so then um, it, the, um, uh, I think I went back too far here. So then they, he moves right to Christ's ascension and his reception into heaven. So he was in hell, he's raised, and he, um, and they don't have that whole, you know, 40 days that he's walking around on earth with his apostles and showing himself to Thomas. Um, they, he jumps right to the ascension and his glorious reception into heaven. And we have this wonderful three verses from Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. We sing a hymn that almost you know, paraphrases that almost exactly. Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. And we often do that um, sometimes on Palm Sunday, um, sometimes because we you know, kind of bring that the king of glory coming into the city, um, and sometimes uh, Christ the king. So whenever there's a triumphant entrance of Jesus, that's an appropriate hymn. And as Jesus gets into heaven, there's this recitative. Unto which of the angels said he at any time, they were talking about God the Father, thou, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. In other words, they're saying, when did God ever say to one of the angels, you are my son, I've begotten you? Because he didn't. He created the angels, but Jesus is his only begotten son, and that's part of our creed. Begotten, not made. A son, not a created being. Um, let all, and then of course it's followed by a chorus, let all the angels of God worship him. And then the last part of part two is the apostles are now going out to preach the gospel. But he doesn't give us anything from Acts or the epistles. He comes back to the Old Testament again Psalms, the Psalms, and uh, other Old Testament readings. Thou art gone up on high, thou hast led captivity captive, and received gifts for men, yea, even for thine enemies, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Uh, this kind of archaic talk, but basically um, what this Psalm is saying is that gifts were given to men, and we talk about all the spiritual gifts. And there's a cross-reference um, of this scripture to, um, I'll find it on here, uh, Ephesians, um, that, 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 that suggests that while Christ has gone up on high, he has given gifts to us. Quote, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, he ascended on high and took prisoners captive. He gave gifts to men. And then it goes on to list all those gifts of the ministries. He, to some, he made apostles, some as prophets, others as evangelists or teachers or creatures. So the spreading of the word is now where we're at. This is where we are right now in the whole salvation history. We're at this point. We're supposed to be spreading the word. Um, it says in the next passage, the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of preachers. 
How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. It was written in Isaiah 52. It's quoted in Romans 10, 15, because that is where they're going out. The, the disciples are going out to the Romans. They're going out to the Ephesians. They're going out to the Galatians and the Thessalonians, bringing the gospel. Their sound has gone out into all the lands and their words unto the ends of the world. Does everyone accept it? <laughs> no. So the last part of, well, I think this is the last part of part two, um, the world's rejection of the gospel and God's response. And when they talk about the world, they're kind of meaning like not the kingdom of God and kind of referring to the world or the nations as the, the groups of people that aren't accepting of God's word. Why do the nations so furiously rage together? And why do the people emit a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And in the original scriptures, they use the, the, the Hebrew word for Messiah, his anointed. That's specifically what it means. Um, so the nations, the kings, they're rising up against, um, against the Lord and his anointed. Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their yokes from us. That is the, the rebellious kings and rulers of the earth rejecting. They want to break the bonds of the Lord and his anointed. They don't want to follow. They don't want to um, adhere to the word. He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. So this is God's reaction. Ha, you think that you can just, you know, do what you want? I'm the Lord. He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now that sounds pretty violent, um, but in the New American Bible translation that I have, it doesn't say thou shalt break them. It says thou shalt shepherd them with a rod of iron. So that kind of gives a little bit different context. Um, not going to necessarily dash everybody to pieces. He will shepherd. And then because he is going to win that battle, there's victory. And in Revelation 19 and Revelation 11, we have the texts that make up the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Omnipotent means all-powerful. The kingdom of this world, this world, is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords, hallelujah. I learned when I was doing this, the only place in the New Testament that you find the word hallelujah is in Revelation 19. It's, it, it happens in a lot of different places in the Old Testament. It was important to um, the Jewish tradition and scriptures but it only happens in Revelation 19. Now we're part three. Part three is quite short. Um, God has conquered. I mean, he is ruler of heaven and earth. And part three deals with what it means for us. Okay, our final triumph over sin and death. And it starts out with the promise of eternal life. And uh, the most beautiful piece in my mind in the whole oratorio is I, uh, I, the Sopranos aria, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And this is a picture, a, 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 um, 
drawing of Handel's tomb in Westminster Abbey. And he you know, specifically requested that the piece of music that he's holding in the space relief is this piece. I know that my redeemer liveth. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. That means on the last day. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. For now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. And the whole idea of the first fruits was very important. The first fruits were when you harvested your crops, the very first fruits of the harvest were the best. And you offered them to God. Your lambs, the best unblemished, you know, that was the first offering you made was to God. And then the rest was for, you know, your use. But Christ is the first fruits in this case where he was, he was the ideal. And he was, um, he was the sacrifice that was made to God as the first fruits. And then we can follow him. Um, and so this is, uh, it's probably number 13 because I think I missed the hallelujah chorus. Um, <laughs> he's got the original CD so we can play it while we're having cookies. Um, all right, so this is the I Know That My Redeemer Liveth. several passages that covers Corinthians 15. They don't always perform these, uh, but to me, it's a really meaty part of the scripture. Um, Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. So the first man in that sentence means Adam, and the second man in that sentence means Jesus. For as in all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Then we have, okay, so that there's that promise that will be made alive in Christ. And the final section is the day of judgment and the resurrection of the dead. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. From, again, from 1 Corinthians 15. Um, the last trumpet refers to, in Revelation, uh, Revelation's a scary book if you've ever studied it. Um, there are seven trumpets. The first six trumpets bring like um, incredible destruction, you know, fire and hail mixed with blood and locusts and, you know, all kinds of death and destruction. But the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, brings, um, you know, brings that, uh, that the Messiah. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead will, shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Okay, and that's really central. We believe in the resurrection of the body. That comes, we believe in it. We say that in our creed every week. Um, that, and that body will be incorruptible. In other words, whole, not, not decomposed. Not, and, and that we are able to be changed because God is able to do that in us. For this, this incorruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. I had to include this for the trumpet Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Um, they're kind of equating in this place that death has a sting like a scorpion, and that sting injects poison. Um, so the sting of death is sin. The poison is of that stinger is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. In other words, the way the law has been imposed upon the people in a way that they can't possibly follow. But thanks be to God who give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if Christ has redeemed us, oh, and that's the next one. Um, switching to Romans. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth, who is he that condemneth? So in other words, when we are raised and we put on our incorruptible body by the grace of God, by his transforming us, there's nothing that, the, that evil can do to us anymore. Nobody can speak against us. He's justified us. Nobody can condemn us because we've been redeemed through the Messiah. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, 
who is at the right hand, who makes intercession for us. Um, in other words, no one has power to condemn us. Through him, we overcome our afflictions and trials. And the final um, movement, or actually two movements, but it's kind of combined into one, is from Revelation 5. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's where that lamb comes in again. And hath redeemed us to God by his blood to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. This is what you know, I just envision is going to be the song we're all singing in heaven when the final times have come and the Lamb is upon the throne and all have been redeemed. And um, I'm going to have Tom play this in the background um, once, we, once we are complete here. Um, I'm going to invite you to have more coffee and cookies or bottled water if you'd like. Uh, I just want to uh, make one pitch uh, for the symphony. Um, they are performing the Messiah. They won't be performing every single movement because most places don't do that anymore. They leave out certain things. But um, we want, I wanted you to hear all the scriptures. December 10th at 7.30 at the Stephanie Weil Center, uh, the symphony orchestra and chorus. It is a sing-along, so if you've ever sung before, um, you're welcome to sing along with the chorus parts. I can't even sing along with the solo parts. Um, and then uh, I realize not everybody may be going to the symphony concert, but certainly if you would like to purchase a CD or download um, the music, um, whatever device you use. The, the piece, the CD that I used tonight for the music samples um, was from the 250th anniversary performance of the premiere of the Messiah that happened uh, in Dublin, Ireland. And it was conducted by Sir Neville Mariner with the Academy and Chorus of St. Martin in the Fields, which is a quite renowned orchestra and chorus. And it's um, by Phillips, uh, uh, the, produced by Phillips. Um, beautiful, I just can't say enough. And so uh, it's really kind of lovely to listen to that kind of voice. So, um, okay, so please enjoy more coffee and cookies and I don't want to take them all home. I'll give a basic Cleo to take home. <laughs>